John 6, verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. When uh, Rachel and I lived in Exeter, um, I was working for a church um, down there. Um, we had quite a lot of students, and one of our students had a very unfortunate experience in his first week in the university. He went into the canteen in the halls, and he was pushing his tray along. And he said, uh, and I'll have some of that soup, please. And the person behind said, well, actually, that's not soup, that's, that's gravy. Uh, and this was so uh, amusing to the other people that he was with that he acquired the nickname Gravy. He was actually called Paul, but from then on, for three years at Exeter University, he was called Gravy. <laughs> the trouble is it didn't end up there because he, he fell in love with uh, another student and married her, and she'd always known him as Gravy. <laughs> and the name kind of travelled with him, and... Uh, I think still there are a number of his friends who call him that. I bumped into him at Word Alive last year, and uh, that was the name that we used. So it's a curious thing which takes some uh, explanation. Um, it is unusual to be called after food. Um, I can't think of many other examples. But the Lord Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. And I promised yesterday that we'd investigate why he uses that metaphor. And that's what he's going to show us in the next section of the passage. It's a very important metaphor. It's something which he explains at length 
because he wants us to be in absolutely no doubt at all about it. And we're going to see that it's fundamental to the shape of the, the Christian life as well. Uh, we're going to skip over a little bit. Uh, you'll see that in verse 41, um, the first part of the section which Sarah read to us, there's a note of dissent and grumbling. We're going to come back to that. Uh, grumbling will be one of our themes after the break as we get to the end of the chapter. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 47 where he explains the bread of life and that's our first heading. Jesus explains the bread of life. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. He's repeating. Uh, He's not ashamed to use repetition in this chapter. It's a fundamental principle of education. Sometimes we need things well uh, drilled in or screwed into our thinking. And he's happy to say this again because it's so important. I am the bread of life. Then he goes on to compare uh, the bread that he is with the manna in the desert. We've already seen that in this chapter, that's the background. Uh, Jesus has already, or the people have already referred to Moses, who gave the people the manna. And Jesus now makes a comparison between himself and the manna in uh, verse 49. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here's a bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. We better just revise the manna. So turn back, please, to uh, Exodus chapter 16. Um, and we'll just remind ourselves of, of what happened. Um, we'll pick it up in Exodus 16, verse 2. Um, the people of God have just got out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're uh, in, Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula on their way to the Promised Land. It's a dry and barren place. There's nothing to eat, and so the whinging starts. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "'If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt.'" There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted, but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And to cut the story short, the Lord gives them quail, these little birds that fly in, in vast quantities to eat. But verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person and have it in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And you'll know that the story goes on to tell us that for 40 years, as the people of God wandered in that bleak place uh, where there was uh, very little uh, natural vegetation, He sustained them uh, by this daily provision of this extraordinary manna which came down and appeared on the ground each morning. Then once they got across the Jordan into the promised land of Canaan, the the manna finished. That was the end of that. But all the way across this desert journey, he sustained them with this. He kept them from dying by feeding them uh, in the desert. That's the background to what Jesus is saying as we turn back now to John chapter 6. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert... Yet they died. In other words, uh, it kept them going for a bit. But of course, they all eventually died uh, a natural death, in a sense, in the end. Now he says, he's like that, but better. I am the bread of life. Uh, Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. 
And he goes on to explain, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The parallel with the manna is obvious. In a sense, the manna came down from above. It was uh, directly provided by God for the people. And Jesus uh, says he's come down from heaven uh, to be the living bread to feed people. He's uh, he's assuming or teaching here uh, his pre-existence. Uh, it's something which is a very strong note in John's gospel. Jesus didn't just start to exist, of course, as the baby born in Bethlehem, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh. Uh, he's speaking of his incarnation, his coming down into the world. And we've got that, I think, so far, and that's clear, and that's the parallel. Just the manna came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus has come down from heaven to feed his people. Uh, that they might live forever. But then at the end of this verse, he, he takes the thing on a step further. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now he's moving beyond the incarnation to the cross. He's looking ahead to his sacrificial death on the cross. And you'll know that all through the Gospel of John, the shadow of the cross, although it hasn't yet happened, is sort of projected across everything that's happened. It's always on the plan. It's always something that's going to happen. He's going to die to give his flesh for the life of the world. And we're right at the heart of the Gospel here, of course, aren't we? This is why Jesus really came. The people, you remember, had wanted to... They'd recognized he was a prophet sent by God but responded wrongly by wanting to make him king by force. But of course, what he'd come to do was a mission that was far greater than simply to liberate the people from the Romans. He'd come to set the people free from sin as he came to die in our place on the cross to bear the punishment that we rightly deserve in and of himself. He came to give his flesh for the life of the world. He faced that judgment for us. Hence, verse 51, the middle uh, sentence there, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's the most wonderful truth. Just to revise, though, if you're suspicious of claims, I think we're all naturally suspicious of people who make big claims, especially claims about themselves, because we're bombarded with various different kinds of claims. We saw uh, yesterday how in this chapter... The feeding of the 5,000 is very, very closely tied together with this. The two belong together. As if to say, you don't have to believe these claims just because I say it. Look what I can do. And the miracle of feeding vast numbers of people by himself to relieve their hunger is an illustration of uh, his ability to give us eternal life. But it's also um, validation of it. And again, I say, as we, as we said yesterday, the promise of eternal life, the promise that we can eat of a food which will allow us to live forever, ought to catch our attention. I think uh, sometimes when we're students, we think we're going to live forever. Uh, or, uh, but as life goes by, uh, one realizes increasingly one is not going to live forever. And it is an urgent issue to know how we may uh, have this bread and live forever. And Jesus offers it. But let me now come back to the question which I raised, to which I promised an answer. Why use this metaphor of bread? And the second heading here, and I think it's the main thing in this section, is that he uses it because it's to do with the whole shape of the Christian life. 
Jesus, of course, is the master teacher. A number of you here are teachers, and you'll have thought carefully about how to communicate various things to the people that you teach. And the Lord Jesus is the most masterly teacher. He chooses every word in order to be able to communicate clearly. And what's the point of the food metaphor? The point of the food metaphor is that what you do with food is you eat it. Have a look at the verbs. Verse 53, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, Verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Verse 57, so the one who feeds on me will live because of him. Imagine I stop you outside Tesco with your blue and white bag and I'm very nosy and I say what have you got in the bag and you say well um, I've got some bread and I've got a packet of marshmallows quite a big packet of marshmallows I've got a couple of tins of soup and I've got some camembert and I say no what are you going to do with those and you say, well, the bread, I like making decorations out of the bread. I'm into bread de- decor, and uh, I'm going to put the bread up and uh, perhaps a uh, drawing pin, stick it to the wall, something like that. What are, you, what are you going to do with the marshmallows? Well, I really like resting my head on those, actually. I'm going to fill a pillowcase with those marshmallows. What are you going to do with the tins of soup? Uh, well, they make great bookends. What about the camembert? Well, I know it's strange, but I really like to use that as a kind of air freshener. You leave it there long enough. Now, it's an extraordinary idea, isn't it? But actually, we do buy food, we have food, in order to eat it. And the point is as simple as that. He wants us to receive him in complete dependence, as we do with food. You can see this very clearly, because the point that the metaphor's making and the metaphor itself are paralleled. Have a look at verse 40. My father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So so that's that's the the actual thing, in a sense, which the metaphor illustrates. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. In other words, the eating and the drinking is a picture of what he means by belief. And eating and drinking means receiving, you receive food into you. That's what we've all done already this morning. I look forward to doing it at lunch. Done a great deal of it, in fact, this weekend. Um, receiving, welcoming into our lives, and indeed absolutely depending on him. That's the picture which he wants us to grasp. That's how he wants us to relate to him, to receive us, to receive him into our life. Depending not on ourselves, but on him. Eating is a picture of dependence, isn't it? We can't live long without food, and it's a reminder to us daily that we are dependent creatures. I think perhaps what's most shocking here is the way he he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, That's an extraordinary sort of thought, isn't it? Of course, when we see blood in the Bible, it's always a reference to a violent death, uh, as I mentioned uh, before. It's always a reference to a violent death. And he is, when he talks about uh, drinking his blood, he's talking about depending on him in his death. In other words, depending absolutely on his death for the forgiveness of our sins, our justification, our access to God, our adoption as his children, not on ourselves. We drink his blood. It is very shocking language, and it's probably 
because of the use of this kind of language in New Testament times and afterwards, that you, you'll probably know that uh, in the pagan world there are accusations leveled against the Christians of being cannibals uh, because they'd use language like this. But it comes from the Lord Jesus, and it's a very graphic and potent metaphor for having to depend on him and taking nourishment from him. Just in case you're in any doubt about that, uh, there's a section of the chapter which we've only looked at briefly, which was the walking on the water. Just look back to that. It's making in its, uh, partly the same point. Uh, if you look back to um, verse 19, they rowed three or three and a half miles and they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The same theme of receiving is stressed there. And actually, the, the verb that's used there in the Greek is the same that you find in uh, John 1.12. Uh, if you look back to that, where, you know, John chapter 1, he sets out his stall. It's the kind of blurb for the whole of the book. He gives us the headline themes. He talks about how Jesus was rejected by many in verses 10 and 11. But verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And this is so important because it is different from the way we might naturally think of Christianity. Uh, lots of people couldn't care less about Jesus, but there are some people who would see him essentially as a figure to be admired. A figure whose example we are to follow. I think it's fair to say that I was, when I was a child, I was, I was, my mum and dad, who were very kind to me, brought me up a little bit on that kind of model. Uh, and looking back, I'm, I'm grateful because it meant we heard Bible stories at bedtime and so on. But actually, Jesus takes us in a different direction. What he's saying is it's not simply a question of admiring him. It's a question of receiving him in absolute dependence into our lives and depending on him day by day. He's not looking for admiration. He's looking for the outstretched hand that needs his help. Do you remember the story of blind Bartimaeus? Uh, you've got the crowd who are uh, rather embarrassed by this man shouting out that, uh, to ask Jesus for his help. They simply see Jesus as a figure to be admired. But Bartimaeus shows saving faith because he knows he needs Jesus' help. I know it's a different picture here. The same essential point is being made. Real Christian faith is coming to Jesus with outstretched hands, looking to him as food depending on him and receiving him into our lives, knowing that we can't save ourselves and we need him. At this point, it begins to get quite personal. I can't remember. somebody. If there's somebody here who's a good historian, you might be able to help me. Which Victorian prime minister it was who was heard to say, things are come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to interfere with the private life of a man. It's a great quote, isn't it? Uh, and, but this is very personal. It's about the need for each of us to receive Jesus into our lives. Now, think about a school assembly. Some of you who are teachers will be familiar with this. Imagine that the head teacher uh, invites in a, a local vicar one week. And the local vicar comes in and tells the, the, the children about uh, what a great person Jesus is and how we should all try and follow his example. And on the way out, the, the head teacher says, Oh, thank you very much, vicar. Hopefully that will help everybody to behave a bit better from now on. Next week, he gets another local vicar who comes in and says, 
Children, you need to receive the Lord Jesus into your lives. Oh, thinks the head teacher. Starts getting complaints from the staff. This is all very evangelical and earnest. And too close and personal. If the head teacher is feeling confident, might even take on the vicar. But if the vicar has his wits about him, he'll say, actually, this is the very heart of the Christian faith. We have the whole of John chapter 6 making this point again and again, emphatically. And actually, if the vicar's got his wits about him, he might even add that Christians have a graphic visual aid which we are encouraged by Jesus to use to remind us of this. It's what's going to happen amongst us later this morning as we receive the Lord's Supper together. Jesus is so keen for us to get this that he gives us this picture, a picture of absolute dependence on him, on the need spiritually to receive the Lord Jesus into our lives and depend on him completely uh, in his death for our life. It's a terribly sad irony that the Lord's Supper in many parts of the sort of Christian world has achieved, has, has acquired a kind of life of its own as if it's something magic. It's not. It's a pointer to this same thing that Jesus is pointing to here. Now let's come to some applications. Jesus makes them himself and they're there in verses 53 and following. First application, necessity. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If we haven't received Jesus into our lives in this sense, absolute dependence and uh, independence upon him and trust, like we eat food, if he's simply a figure that we admire, then we're not real Christians, and as he puts it here, we have no real life in us. Of course, we have physical life. We have brain function and consciousness, I assume, and physical appetites. But equally, in a universe made by God, living out of fellowship with him, we don't have real life, which consists in knowing the one who made us. And so Jesus says, we must receive him. It's necessary. And the picture of bread, I think, is very striking because bread is a staple food. It's a basic, it's essential of the diet. And food is something which we simply can't do without. When a person is hungry, you find it supersedes almost every other need that they have. So I'm bound to ask this question, even though I know I'm amongst a gang of uh, uh, almost everybody is a Christian. But I will ask it anyway. Have you personally received Jesus into your life? Are you maybe just an admirer? Somebody who's on the edge, you're struck by the kind of person that he is. Well, he tells us here, in simple terms, what we need to do to receive him into our life in complete dependence. And we can pray a simple prayer just to ask him to come in. And he keeps that and he will change us from the inside out. That's how the Christian life begins. So necessity is the first thing. Here's the second thing. It's assurance. Verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. I love those whoever's in John's Gospel. They're such an encouragement. They're a reminder that uh, there is nobody who, on account of their past life, their sinfulness, anything about their background cannot be saved by Jesus if they will come to him, whoever. I confess that 
At times when I'm conscious of sin and hypocrisy in my life, I'm awfully glad to see that word, whoever. It's a reminder to me of the promise of God to me. And with it goes a promise of uh, eternal life. Uh, He says in in, in the verse, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That is a present experience from the day I first trust Christ. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's looking forward to the last uh, day, the glorious day, the resurrection day, when we are raised bodily to be with Christ and God and God's people forever. Uh, Quite a few years ago, the American preacher and evangelist Billy Graham was conducting one of his big missions in Sydney, Australia, and he was interviewed on TV. And he was asked if he knew he was going to heaven. And he said, yes, I'm sure I'm going to heaven. And this caused a lot of controversy at the time because uh, people rang in and, and criticized him for saying, that's outrageously presumptuous. Who do you think you are that you think you're good enough to go to heaven? But of course, Billy wasn't trusting in himself. He was trusting in promises like this. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And even if we're feeling uh, discouraged and sometimes dry, turn back to that passage and look at the whoever and look at the promise of eternal life now and look at the promise about the future and take it to heart. And here's a third application. The third application is nourishment. Uh, Verse uh, 55, 56, uh, 57. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. I think what the Lord Jesus is saying is that if the Christian life starts by receiving him, it goes on in that way. The the continuing picture of the Christian life is a picture of being nourished and sustained by Jesus. Um, I think probably in the background of this account, uh, because of the manner, is the picture of the desert journey of the people of God. Are you familiar with this? I take it that you are, as a great Bible model of the Christian life. Um, if you were children, which you're not, but I'll do it anyway because I haven't got a map on the screen. This is your pocket map of the journey of the people of God. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Between your first and second finger is the River Jordan and uh, just there is the Dead Sea. This is the Nile Delta and uh, where the people of God, you remember, were saved out of Egypt uh, and um, you can just use this anytime you like, you see. (laughs) Remind yourself, they're saved out of Egypt and, and um, so that's the book of Exodus, and uh, the book of Numbers tells us how they traveled across this great desert the promised, uh, to, on their way to the promised land. It took a long time because they're unbelief, but eventually they come up um, your longest finger here, and then they cross the River Jordan into the promised land. And you'll know that in Hebrews 3 and 4, uh, the writer there takes that as a model of the Christian life, and... Um, uh, and equally in 1 Corinthians 10, it's used as a model there, and I think it's in the background here as well. It's a most encouraging uh, model. You might want to remember that next time you look at your left hand, or even draw a little map and stick it on the inside of your kitchen cupboard and write, you are here, and when things seem tough in the desert. You know the hymn, don't you? What's the hymn that we use to let me hear it from you, that, that has this model in it? 
Thank you. We're going to sing it later today. So, well, I hope we are. It's in the booklet. So please, can we sing it? I don't know, but, but, ah, so good. So, uh, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. That, that whole song takes this journey as a, as a model for the Christian life. Our, our forebears love to do that. That's why, that's, that's the, the thrust of, uh, John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. We're on our way through being sustained and nourished by God on our way through to the promised land. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. That's a, that, that is a, a verse, did you realize you were seeing it, about our death? And we're crossing into the promised land that God has for us. And the whole shape of the Christian life is a life of being sustained uh, and uh, uh, nourished by Jesus. Uh, open now the crystal fountain, you see, on the way across the desert. He will strengthen us. Now, I didn't ask, do you, do you call your meetings on Sundays services or do you call them something else? Services, you call you call them services. Now, some people don't like the idea of service because um, it, it, it can sound very churches if it's something which we offer to God. I go to I go to church to do my service, but I think it's a legitimate term for this reason. We can think of it as a service station. Okay, so uh, I don't actually think that is the etymology of the word. I think it, it 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 may not have come about that way, but think of it that way. We go to church to be nourished and sustained. How many times have you had the experience of going? Let's be honest, slightly reluctantly on a Sunday. And uh, you, you, you turn up, um, hopefully on, on time, and you've got a lot of things on your mind. And you go out of church thinking, thank you, Lord, I so needed to hear that. And that way he sustains us uh, through our lives. He feeds us. See, the whole shape of the Christian life is a life of dependence on the Lord Jesus and being sustained and nourished by him. So those are some applications, and these are the things that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 point to. And Jesus gives a little recap himself as he gets towards the end of this preaching, which it turns out uh, uh, he's actually found a, a place where he's doing this, this talk on the, uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Should we pause there and pray together before we have our break? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life. We thank you that the miracle of the feeding points to this and validates this. And thank you for giving us this very graphic metaphor to explain so clearly the shape of the Christian life. May we each receive you and then go on feeding on you and depending on you. And help us to pass this great news on, we pray. Amen.